Welcome back, you wonderful, beautiful people. We have missed you. Welcome to the Shadow Racer Poetry Hour. My name is Adam. I'm joined by my co-host, Carla. And we are super excited to take you on a very special journey today. A journey not through poetry, but prose. Uh, Get yourself a good drink, snuggle up next to a fire, get ready to dig into the underbelly of the city, looking into the unseen, finding out stories that might not otherwise come to the surface until they tap you on your shoulders. We are joined by a amazing author, Samantha Ann Kirby. And today we are discussing her book, Lunatiques, an amazing collection of short stories of the unreal and the unknown. At this time, I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to my wonderful co-host for a more in-depth introduction. Hello, everybody, and again, welcome back to what is usually the Shadow Eraser Poetry Hour, but we are diverging from our namesake tonight to bring you the short stories of another fellow author and wonderful person and dear friend, S.N. Kirby or Samantha Kirby. Uh, Samantha received her bachelor's in English from Tulane University in New Orleans, graduated from the New School's MFA program in creative writing. Her work centers on the nexus of man, magic, and nature with roots in magical realism and fables. Her creative work infuses magic and mystical transformation into character-focused storytellings. And not only is she um, here to talk to us about her amazing book of incredible stories, she is also an expectant mom. And luckily, we were able to get this deep dive in before she goes deep diving into new motherhood. So Sam, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, We're wonderful that we could still have you here tonight. Um, So first of all, tell us, I know um, you're not a New York native. Uh, You went to school at Tulane in New Orleans, but where where did you originally hail from? Uh, Well, thank you both for that beautiful introduction. Uh, Where I come from is always a little bit of a of a story. Um, I was born in Japan. My father worked with the uh, Red Cross, the International Red Cross. So we kind of, um, we were around military bases, but um, not, we were on the civilian side of that. So um, I was born in Japan, lived there for a little bit, grew up in Honolulu, um, Oahu. uh, And that was really beautiful. And then we just kind of hop skipped over to Virginia and then from there, came to Atlanta last two years of high school, went to college in New Orleans, came back to Atlanta, scooped up my husband, and then moved to New York City. So <laughs> I don't really I don't really hail from anywhere, but everywhere. Yeah, everywhere and nowhere. But um, I'm <laughs> exactly. sure, though, that that myriad of experiences and living in such a variety and diversity of regions must have played a huge part in what you were exposed to. Um, but your first love though, your true love is the city as I, mm-hmm. as you, as you mentioned. Oh yeah. I've always wanted to live in New York city. And when I finally got my, um, my MFA, I came up to go to the new school and it was, um, it, I mean, it was just love and, I would have stayed there, <laughs> but uh, my husband is a new, uh, native of Atlanta, so 
we just recently sort of transplanted, but we, um, I'm, I'm still, I've, I've still got the apartment. I can't let it go. So I don't think I've moved technically. That's the way it feels. <laughs> I had to, I had to find some kind of caveat there. <laughs> I am curious, you know, talking about all the different areas that you've lived in, where exactly did this spark for being a storyteller, which is very much a, a dying art these days. I'll correct that. A good storyteller uh, <laughs> is very much a dying art these days. Where did that spark originate? Is there a specific place in your life that sort of inspired that? I know you said New Orleans. I'm curious. I, I'm half Creole, and I know that lore runs deep in our people. Was there any sort of inspiration there? Oh, yeah. No, you called me out spot on. Um, New Orleans is definitely when I was at school. Um, I think I went into school to do something like uh, green business, <laughs> you know, thinking like, yes, this is I've got to get serious. And then pretty quickly realized um, I can't live without words or books or writing. Um, and I took my first creative writing class with Andy Stalling, who is this just phenomenal poet. Um, and we had when I was there at Tulane, we had this amazing creative writing fund um, that was an anonymous donation. And it started the year before I was at school and it ended the year after. So it was really only like a six year program. And we had exposure to so many amazing uh, writers and authors and poets and Rita Dove. We had uh, Michael and Donche come into the classroom and one of my professors is actually um, Thomas Beller, who worked, um, I believe it was called Open City back in the day, um, big, big into the New York scene. Um, and that's, uh, you know, just the kind, of, kind of the list goes on and on of just, you know, having Joan Didion and all of these people coming through and thinking that was, um, you know, just, just not knowing and really lucking into it and thinking, yeah, everybody has this. Um spoiler, they don't. <laughs> so that was uh, just an amazing moment. And then just being so influenced heavily by um, just kind of the magic and um, pulse of the city. It's a really special place to be. There's something just so um, uh, just like this belief in the impossible that's kind of there, you know, you're in the city that's underwater. Um, that really shouldn't exist. Uh, you know, by any means. And yet it, it persists in our culture, in our imagination and just being there and um, something, yeah, something awoke for sure there. And uh, that I think you can really, I think you can really especially feel that I've been told um, in the short story, Trash Moon Lives and very much that character who takes us on that world. Um, he he kind of came to me in New Orleans um, on a rainy day, like it was just the oddest thing. I saw him. Yeah. <laughs> like in my mind, he just kind of walked into the coffee shop and I was just like, Oh, you, like you. Um, and I pocketed him away a little bit for this story to come, uh, you know, gosh, almost a decade later. Um, and then same with the idea of just kind of like this festival of the dead that also resonated in that, um, trash moon lives kind of, uh, vibe and just thinking of all these dancing crawfish and things like that. So a couple of those pieces, you know, they really, the, uh, ideas of them were definitely formed in new Orleans. 
Um, and they returned very much um, in full force when I came to New York and it kind of all solidified in that sort of storytelling sense. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a, a shot here. This is a shot in the dark. You and I have never had an opportunity to really speak before today. Uh, so all I have to go off of is your work. And I'm going to see <laughs> if, I've, if I've misinterpreted this, but I have a feeling that a part of that magic for you lay specifically in architecture. And the reason that I say that is because of how prevalent it is in the details, almost like a, a Steinbeck piece, but specifically the Heath estate, I got a very heavy feeling of the importance of architecture and history and the spirit that is connected to a physical handmade object there's an echo there that reverberates and crosses time barriers and new Orleans has that in spades. So I could be wrong, but I've got a, I've got a feeling that that was a heavy influence as well. No, you are spot on. Um, that is exactly right. And it's something that I feel like, you know, when you go to a place, like how do you capture the soul of it? You know, how do you understand, um, what has gone into, to make it so, um, and very much that feeling of, of how are the buildings built? What do they look like? Who are the people who inhabit this? Um, you know, and I think, I think there is also too, a part of that in, um, the, um, world walker of central park and that idea of, you know, when they go back to, or they go into this sort of liminal space of, of New York, um, for all of all time past and the ways in which the buildings are, um, kind of constructed together of these like little pieces of history. And I think that that in and of itself, you know, that's like where the magic, um, that soul of a place really exists. And, you know, it is something that like is so unbounded by time. Um, and just to think of it and, you know, um, it's for me, it's, it's something that like, I can just sit and, and stare at a cityscape for probably a little bit too long. Um, cause you're just transfixed by it. You know, how did this get here? Who put their hands on this place? You know, who, who felt this, you know, who lived here? Um, but yeah, no, so spot on. That's a hundred percent. And that there is, I believe, an emotional intelligence that goes hand in hand with that sort of understanding. Then an item is not just an item; it is a, uh, it's a vessel that holds those memories. Um, I want to hijack the podcast real quick and read a page out of your <laughs> specifically um, in regards to that concept. This is in reference to the story we were just speaking about, the World Walker of Central Park, uh, page sixty-three. Quite a place, I said, before taking a hesitant taste. With a sip came a burst of seawater and a memory that wasn't mine. The fleeting thought was of a sailor just in for a, a step over. What was that? I asked with a shake of my head. The person who drank that, he said with a smile that turned into a quick frown. Whoever drank this just ate an oyster, he said with a spit on the floor. I hate oysters. Interesting, I said, while inspecting the foggy glass. Even the drinks are dead. <laughs> I, I love that you managed to capture that phil philosophical idea of the continuance of memory, the continuance of experience through showing and not telling. I think that's incredibly important if you're going to write prose 
I can read a set of instructions. That's that's what telling is. I can read a set of instructions. I, I receive no intellectual stimulation out of that. But through that small interaction there with the, the experiencing of not just the the liquor, but the memories that kind of go hand in hand. That's a very smart way of doing that. Very, very cool. Oh, thank you so much. That delights me so much that you picked that out. Um, that's one of my favorite pieces, this idea of, um, yeah, of capturing that moment in time of what, you know, just this, <laughs> this idea that memories themselves can have a kind of life, you know, mm -hmm. and um, that they too can go into this world of the dead. <laughs> and um, it, it, it's one of those things, you know, we always think so much about a lot about um, spirits and, and the dead and this idea of um, spirits loving spirits. So it's like this very um, sort of, I don't know how you'd call it, maybe like folklore or, or magic practice or um, just this idea of leaving um, spirits out like uh, alcohol offerings and things like that um, for the spirits and just kind of playing with that and how that would manifest in a world where, you know, you're in the spirit of, of things, places, moments past. Um, mm. And yeah. I, I, yeah. <laughs> I absolutely love it. Very, very cool stuff. I'm sorry. I've been rambling, Carla. Um, <laughs> I don't mean to, to hog the time. I'm sure you have plenty of questions and insights as well. Oh, absolutely. What I, you know, just in hearing uh, your background, Sam, and hearing more of that. And of course, you know, I've heard you read pieces of your work uh, before. And it's funny how, how much you talk about and, you know, how it reflects in your writing, even though you've brought this myriad of experiences with you from the different places that you've lived or visited, you've concentrated so much of this into that shadowy cityscape of the city. And, you know, having been, you know, a New Jersey native all of my life, I say New Jersey because most people know it as New Jersey, unless you're from here. If you're from here, it's just Jersey. Um, <laughs> you know, it was always, you know, whenever it, when anybody talked about going to the city, you just knew, you knew that was New York. And, you know, the night, the night I first actually got to hear you do a live reading, which is when we were at KGB and um, leaving that night. I was, you know, luckily I was the passenger in a car. So I was able to just kind of sit and ruminate over everybody's work. Cause you know, I remember like listening to you and your descriptions of that, you know, I had, I had written something where I described the city of as a sprawling skyline, the bar graph that plots the peaks and valleys of my coming of age and seeing that, you know, having spent a lot of time in the city myself, you can have places like the Chelsea hotel and St. Patrick's cathedral. And they're both such haunted places by, but by such different spirits, the dichotomy of those two things, you know, those two areas and, and, and the, the, the inhabitants of those places, but yet here they are in this one encapsulated place. And what I love though, is that in your work is that you lend a voice to so many different, you know, characters in that cityscape. You know what I mean? It's like, it's not just one archetype, it's several. So was that, was that on purpose or was it just the way it happened? Oh my gosh, that's a really great question. Um, 
You know, I think so often that New York City, to me, and I think for um, so many others too, it's this like myriad of possibilities. You can be anywhere on any given night and there's just these things sort of happening co-current to each other. Um, or you can have this moment of total unity in a city. I think that's kind of that moment captured in Sturgeon's Tale where everybody's kind of coming together and celebrating at once. Um, and yet you have the protagonist of that story who has a, a very isolating experience. And I've just, I've always found that so fascinating, you know, um, to just, especially as a writer and a, a prose writer at that, to sit and, and think about these kind of fictional characters, you know, what would, what would they be doing? Um, who would they be talking to? Um, another example I think of is, uh, Emmeline in The Beautiful Wendigo. And how she's, again, you know, having this like experience of togetherness in the warmth, kind of this warm November day in Central Park, and then yet having like a very isolating experience of walking by herself. And that just kind of flow in and out of humanity um, about where people are going, what they're doing. Uh, it's just, it's endlessly fascinating. So I think if it came from anything, it would just be kind of um, a product of, of, living in the city and looking out and just noticing the kind of consistent rush and river of humanity that's just always passing through and just always provides any, at any given moment, any kind of um, potential for action or non-action or just, you know, a, a moment that is wholly individual and yet, you know, collectively experienced. It's this really cool thing. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that's just such a culture of the city because that's really literally what it is, is you're in the middle of everything yet apart from everything. You know, it's really just this huge conglomerate of individuals who just sort of overlap in this strange, almost like the, the, the incoming and outgoing of waves on the beach. It's like, you know, each wave it's its own, but it's always kind of tumbling over the one that came before it. And, you know, I, again, just remembering my own time there, you know, I remember the first time I ever got to go up to the observation deck of the World Trade Center, you know, before we lost the towers. And I looked down and I saw Broadway. And I noticed that the shape of the, the city, at least that part of Midtown, where I was looking down, like downtown looking up, uh, going uptown, and it looked like the anatomical shape of a human heart. And just wow. there was Broadway, like this like huge aortic vein that just kind of wound right in the middle of it. And it's that moment that I looked and I realized that the city was this living, breathing thing. And yet every other God only knows what every other person around me was thinking or seeing. But here, like you said, we're all having this collective vision, you know, uh, this collective experience, we're all in the same place, but yet we're so singular in where we are in that moment. And yeah, that is such the culture of the city. But yet at the same time, like I said, it, there's almost this etherealness that connects anybody that's in there and experiences that. And that's what I said. I absolutely love the way you encapsulate that in your work. Mm, yeah. Thank you. And I also like I found myself really um, captured by this idea of there being like all of these secret places, like secret places in the city. Yeah. Um, th this idea that like you can only maybe access um, these by, you know, I think in the book it says a, a, a slip or, you know, um, a, a stake in the machine. Yeah. Yeah. 
And um, I just wondered, you know, translating that into magical realism, um, but also just translating that into, you know, how many secret places are there in the city that, you know, who knows about them? How do you access them? I just find that so fascinating too, as a writer, like, mm, that's an interesting space. <laughs> that's one thing that really kind of uh, set a check mark off in my head when I was reading your work. It, it, your work is extraordinarily liminal, if that makes sense. Um, and it, it echoes a lot of what I've read in King, like Stephen King has what he calls a thinny, which is an area where things become unreal. And even if you look at Poe's work, it has a very liminal quality to it. Uh, the way that you're describing the house, um, in the Heath estate very much reminded me of the fall of the house of Usher. Um, mm -hmm. it has its own character and, and, and I am curious that, that concept of writing these liminal spaces or wanting to capture this feeling of reality and unreality sort of meeting together on temporary terms. Is that something that was inspired by authors that you had read before? Or is that a real life experience that you've kind of found yourself in as you've moved through all of these different locations? Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. I think it, for me, um, I was, I want to say 16. And I first read Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Um, I first read him in Spanish, and I thought I, I must not be, I must not be very good at Spanish because there's no way you can do this with words and thoughts. And um, and then I read him in English, and I was, <laughs> I was happily surprised. I said, Oh my gosh, I didn't know you could do this with words and images and thoughts. Um, and it was uh, Los Funerales de la Mama Grande and um, The Funeral of Big Mama was what I first read. And then I remember reading Eyes of a Blue Dog and just having um, my my mind blown at, at you know, this young age. Um, uh, and that's where I think the ideas for me as a writer first started that you could do this. You could take this um, quite ordinary experience that you're having and change it into this uh sort of transitory, as you're saying, sort of liminal space that suddenly that these things can become mechanisms and ways and gateways kind of into this magical world and not, not magical in the sense of, um, you know, fairies and trolls. And of course there is a space for that, but this idea of, uh, things turning into other things, quality to them, um, this idea of, of just, First, you know, for a moment or a, a mechanism, you know, whether that is the the destruction of the Heath estate, um, that is kind of this mechanism for breaking down this sense of time where all of a sudden time exists all at once. Um, or whether it's, uh, you know, trash moon lives, a, a kind of slip of the machine. Um, this, these mechanisms that we can use as a way to maybe transcend this, this world that is just, it feels like it's just a breath next to ours, but how do you, how do you get that? How do you create that bridge? Um, so that's, that's kind of where the thinking came from that. But, um, you know, again, it was really just reading that Gabriel Garcia Marquez and then just ingesting everything he'd <laughs> ever done as fast as I could. Um, and then from there, you know, uh, Italo Calvino was another big influence for me, just the way he really thinks about, um, not just getting into those spaces. I remember invisible cities was the first 
book I read that, you know, he's talking about his hometown um, and in, in Italy and just these different places and just the ways in which um, he mechanically describes them uh, in just kind of this, I, um, this, this fabulous way. And it's just, it's, it's, it's really like an amazing process to watch on the, the page and just say, wait, what? Like, you know, so he kind of did it backwards, I guess, for me. Um, if you think about it, like he showed me the end product to get to the, um, to get to the sort of, um, quote unquote, like registered line of perception. Um, and that, and thinking about a lot of the ways in which he, he works and he builds stories and he thinks about how stories are built. Um, the castle of cross destinies is another big one that I think about just, you know, looking at how to build, um, stories from tarot cards and archetypes. And, you know, that's just like, it's just very fascinating. Or if on a winter's night where he starts the story over and over again. Um, so just the, that's kind of, I think, where the two authors for me really kind of influenced that line of thinking. Awesome. Thank you so much. I am curious about the introduction. Um, can you explain to us where the concept from came from for the creation of these lunatiques? Uh, I, I love the fact that your introduction here almost gives us a starting point to explain the stories that we're about to read. It gives us a source before we dig into the stories themselves, um, an origin story, if you will, to this universe. Where did this specific character spark from and, and why is the moon so damn important to you? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I know. That's exactly what it is. This is kind of, um, I don't quite, you know, it's so funny. I think, when you're putting together a collection and it became apparent that there needed to be some kind of um, narrator in the sense that there needed to be um, the, the moon, you know, herself or themselves or however you'd like to think of the moon um, just really kind of wanted to have a voice and wanted to, to, to say, yes, like I am the mother of these, of these creatures. And, um, I think the moon represents so much for me. Um, and one of the, th one of the words that, um, phrases that I use that always kind of gets me is, uh, I am the light in the dark. And I think that there is so much, let me see if I can find it. Cause it, it's like one of those things that, <laughs> you know, just really struck, um, struck a chord. And, uh, she says, the world is full of darkness, but even as you look upon me, you can see that there is light in the dark. I could tell you a thousand stories over and over that tell you the same. So as you sleep and dream, I am here. When you reach out to me, I hold you in the way I can with all the magic and moonlight I possess. And I just really liked that idea of, you know, even when you're feeling like maybe you're just all alone it's dark out. You can always really look up to the moon and see that light. And I think for so many of the characters, especially in this story, there's like a common sense of they just feel like they don't fit in or they feel like, they feel like, uh, maybe not that they were made wrong or, um, 
So, but there's just a sense that they just, they don't fit in to the world around them for whatever reason. Oh my gosh. I'm so sorry. My dog's hollering. <laughs> he agrees. That's Batiste. That's the Batiste. He's a boxer who thinks he's a hound dog. <laughs> he's a little lunatic too. <laughs> um, but this idea that all of the, all of, all of the characters, they just feel a little bit, um, a little bit outside of, and, and maybe that's the mechanism in which, you know, their stories and their uh, transformations do become possible. But this idea that someone's out there looking out for them, you know, like you've got the moon. One of the things that really spoke to me about this particular narrator is the fact that their motivation isn't born from some great plan. It's not born from some grand idea. It's uh, it's born from this. I am moved by the simplest of things, a hand reaching out, a heartfelt confession, a secret embrace or a vow made to live a truer self. Then they go on to say, and I love this line, I dreamt of being in the nose picking banality of the mundane. Yeah. I, I love the fact that the narrator sees the gift in just existing. And, mm -hmm. and one of your other characters, um, Oh goodness, which story is it? It's um with the other world, the parade of the uh, the the dead. Which one is that? Oh, world, yeah, world the walker. world walker. The the guide yeah. goes on to say it. It's funny because it's a sentiment that's kind of echoed throughout your work. Oh, I have it underlined with me. <laughs> Life and death are about creating for creation's sakes. You idiot. <laughs> gave me a big stupid smile and it's it's cool because a lot of times the the larger than life or mystical characters that kind of show up in these pieces tend to reflect the motivation of the narrator at the beginning of the book and that concept for creation for creation's sake that's the point what are you getting so hung up on the magic is the fact that you get up and brush your teeth every day or that you see a sunrise or you find a cool leaf on the ground and, and I love the fact that the, the narrator's motivation for this creation, again, isn't some grand, amazing thing. It's just creation for creation's sake. And I think that's beautiful. That's really amazing. I, you know, I never quite made the connection between those two before, um, but that's 100% a spot on uh, statement and summation of the way that these threads are really playing into one another. And you know, I think that that, that that is really true. And maybe part of that stems from just being in New York City and watching so much of humanity um, just kind of pass by. And it is really interesting when I was writing that introduction, um, I was sitting up and, and doing just that, watching humanity kind of walk by and just thinking mm -hmm. about this idea of, um, you know, being a uh, above it and just wanting so desperately to be a part of it all and wanting so desperately, um, to feel this sense. Uh, and maybe it is this like idea of sort of flipping again of going from reality to magic and just this idea of living in magic, going into reality, this deep desire that maybe, you know, something as majestic and fantastic at the moon as the moon would, um, 
like to slip on a smaller skin, you know, mm -hmm. um, just to walk amongst the people on a hot day in June. Um, you know, that in and of itself, it, the same of a, a timeless immortal creature saying, you know, life is for creation's sake, you idiot. <laughs> like, duh, that's the whole point of it all. There is, you know, there isn't some kind of thing. This is it. This is what you're experiencing right now. So and come on. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, I love the concept. Um, Carla, did you want to dig into some specific stories and, and maybe kind of get to the meat of them as we go on with our interview? I know we're at the, the 30 minute mark now because I have a few I'd like to talk about for sure. Absolutely. So my biggest question, I've been meaning to ask you this, I think since, you know, for almost a year now and just never did, you know, never had the, tell me more about Adelaide and where she came from. Oh my gosh. That is so interesting. Um, she, she is, ah, she is such a character. Um, you know, I think she was really born from those long winter mornings. Um, and I think she even has that, that line where she says that, um, when she's talking about how she and the house slept and she talks about slipping in between dreams and cups of coffee and this idea of, uh, you know, long sort of winter lunches. Um, and this idea of, of really the way in which I think, especially, um, especially as someone who grew up in Hawaii, uh, <laughs> who's really experiencing winter for the first time, um, and how it creates its own, uh, its own rhythm and time set in a way that just feels very different from, I guess, perpetual warmth, um, or that hotness of summer. Uh, just this idea that it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a really sort of in between time, this dedicated sort of dreaminess that really, I think allows for her to maybe experience this not just sense of uglier worldliness that she gets from the house and she gets from this idea of um, a self-imposed ownership of the house in a way, but it allows her space to really process a lot of that kind of past trauma that she has with her family, uh, with the death of her mother. And it, it, um, it's very weird having experienced, uh, the death of my mother. Um, it was just very odd to, to have that, um, have that be a piece that was written before the actual event for me itself as the author was about. Um, and so that was just an, I think kind of like a weird sort of meta moment of time and it like melting in and of itself, um, within the, the writing of the piece, uh, and I think that, that that is just a little uh, spooky. Um, but she's definitely somebody who has just, and maybe it is this kind of like familiar rejection of her father that makes her feel a sense of um, immediate sense of rejection from the world. And so in this way, she kind of rejects it and she camps out a little bit in this hidden corner of this, you know, grand majestic house that 
is for her and her mom, uh, very much a family estate for them. And it holds these family memories and it's, it's a place where she does feel, I think at home in a way that her day to day doesn't seem to offer her that kind of sanctuary. You know, even when she's describing her own home, she seems a bit of a guest or a visitor in it. You know, she doesn't go around, um, checking all the drawers, you know, as she does in the Heath estate, she doesn't go around pulling things out. She's just sort of existing in this liminal space of not quite moving in. And yet when she gets into her, the house, um, she really imbe- has embedded herself as a kind of vein, if you will, in the house, um, just a part of its, its ecosystem and its, its life source. And, you know, I think in so many ways, she's tuning into the body consciousness of the house and, making herself uh, a part of its anatomy and a part of its, its structure. If you think of it as kind of this living, breathing person. Yeah. And it's funny you should say that because in saying all of that, what I was thinking is that almost the latency of, you know, becoming a part of something where you've always sort of belonged, but could never really find and sort of an awakening to that. And like, as you said, you know, kind of, you know, almost like being becoming a vein in, you know, in the structure and the, in the, I guess you could say the whole biomechanism of the, of the building of Mm -hmm. the home. And, you know, and I love to, the talking about experiencing winter for the first time, because I, what I love about that is the innocence behind that and the wonder that accompanies that being a December baby myself, I will say I'm (laughs) a little biased. And, you know, like, as I was reading that story, there are two things. One is, um, near your book and this wasn't done on purpose, but it's just one of those kismet universe things. I had a large piece of blue gold stone. And if you've ever looked at a large piece of blue gold stone, it literally looks like the night sky. It's one of my favorite, it's one of my favorite, you know, stones. It's just such a beautiful stone. And it just seems so apropos that it kind of like decided to be your book's neighbor for like <laughs> six months because of where all of my stuff was set up. Um, and yeah, because I think, you know, for time immemorial, we've always kind of grown up with this idea that the night sky, that the night, the moon, it's the providence of dreams. It's the providence of that liminal space. You are literally between days. And, you know, in that space, the possibilities are endless. You can be anything, go anywhere. And, you know, in those winters, like I remember the first, like reading those stories, And then hearing you talk about that tonight, you know, I remember the first time I ever heard the sound of snowfall and not many people understand what that's like until you can really listen and just hear like the crystalline tingling Mm -hmm. of falling snowflakes as they come to rest on, you know, the ground beneath you. And it's just, that's, and basically you pull that in. It's like, not only is that magical, but you give that that force that that existence a being and that's Mm -hmm. brilliant it's absolutely brilliant thank you Uh, adam i think you wanted to say something too i was just going to say what you're saying very much goes along hand in hand with the physics theory of items literally change how they behave if they're being observed 
that that's a scientific mm-hmm. fact. Uh, if you want to take the spirituality <laughs> out of it, you know, by all means, go ahead and do that, uh, dear listener. But a phys- uh, fact in physics is that items will change their behavior once they are being observed. And I think what you're talking about there are are bearing witness to an event gives it a different sort of light. I'm really glad that you you brought up the character of Adelaide, and I found some really interesting um, interesting thoughts behind her psychology in general. There seems to be a large paradox of action with this particular character because the fact that they have sort of ingrained themselves in this old house feels very much like a defense mechanism in a lot of ways. But the Mm -hmm. fact that when they are met with a possible threat, the random noises in the house, their gut reaction is to seek the threat out because it gives them a sense of control. And as a previous trauma survivor, um, I resonated with that deeply. I know what it's like to want to put up my shell. I, I still struggle with that on a regular basis. But I also understand that when you've experienced that trauma in the past, a lot of us have our fight or flight mechanism broken and a good chunk of us have it stuck on fight. And Adelaide very much reminds me of a character that may be going through something similar. Am I, am I projecting or is that in line with the character? Oh no, I think that's absolutely spot on. Um, and, and I never really, um, maybe thought of it that way, but that's exactly, that's exactly what she's doing. This idea of, um, self-preservation, self-protection. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, going back to thinking of the house as a body, you know, and herself as maybe the immune system mm. of seeking out the intruder, seeking out this source. I like um, that. yeah. And of course it's also this idea that the, the sounds that she's hearing could potentially even be you know, the sounds of herself from the future, mm, um, right, this idea, right. right. Of, you know, just so much of this time breaking down that she's experiencing, um, her own reality. And then, you know, that gets into a little bit of a conversation of, well, what does that mean for your future self to be the enemy of your present self or, you know, just the, the miss, um, uh, the misreading of, of mm. what the, the threat is. And it, 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 being, you know, you or something, I, I'm not sure. And I love that you were alluding to that too, because as she's frantically going room to room, she makes a comment that she feels like whatever this is, is right next to her. That as soon as she moves into the room, this, whatever it is, moves out of the room. And I also found it kind of interesting that, and I might, please correct me, Edgar's wife's name is Rose Maria. Is that correct? Rosemary? I think I, I was think I was calling her Rosemara for some okay. reason. Rosemara. Um, yeah. Rosemara, spoiler alert, if you're interested in reading your story, <laughs> skip ahead a few seconds. Uh, Stranger still at the moment of death. She took her bedding and wrapped it over herself, forever encasing herself in her own tomb. Mm-hmm. I very much saw this as a reflection of our main character here of Adelaide here. And I thought that that was really interesting too. Um, real quick, I do have underlined here. I like making notes in my books. Those of you who are actually watching right here, I've got a little note. Of course, it's not going to focus. Uh, page 42 says as a lover of strange things, Adelaide had grown fond of the estate at a young age. 
And I wrote next to it, true of the author as well, question mark. <laughs> yeah. Um, st- <laughs> strange things. I think, um, I don't, I don't know if Adelaide and I personally share that, but I do. I love the idea of, um, this, the strangeness of it. And I think that maybe Adelaide, um, in particular reflects a little bit more with that idea of strangeness and not fitting in this, um, as a little bit more of, uh, of a kind of kinship, I would say of looking for family. And that's, that's the way that she, she resonates with these kinds of items as, um, you know, most other people would say that's weird and, uh, kind of move on. But for her, they represent, oh, that's, that's family. That's that, that kind of, I see something of myself in these strange and, um, I mean, let's, let's be honest, strange and kind of, um, tossed away things, these things that people have sort of, um, digested, chewed up and rejected, which is in a way, I think a lot of the focus of, um, a couple other stories as well, particularly in Trash Moon Lives, this idea of, um, glorifying the discarded as the protagonist in that really sees himself as sort of being left behind by the world as well. Um, and then this idea too of uh, the world walker of Central Park and how he is sort of this king of uh, the discarded and the deceased and what's past. Um, so I, I do think that there is a, a pretty common theme within the book of looking at these these objects, these things, these sort of strange objects and finding them um, beautiful and a sense of glory. And it is really funny, you know, now that you have brought that to light, I forgot that maybe that is a little bit me too. I remember um, my mother would have Christmas decorations and she would always sort of keep the ones that were broken or, um, you know, didn't work anymore. She put them in this box. And when I was a child, I found this box and I said, whoa, well, there's nothing wrong. These are perfectly good. And I would always decorate my room with the quote unquote, um, broken decorations. So, you know, maybe you're, maybe you're right about that. <laughs> it, it speaks to my heart on like a, a guttural level. So I grew up dirt poor, like I couldn't afford to pay attention, but there's my dad joke for the <laughs> podcast, but <laughs> I distinctly remember having Christmases where my gift that year was a small box of used McDonald's Happy Meal toys that mom managed to save up and get at a flea market. Or my grandfather had a garage and he was, he had his own upholstery business. He retired from like three jobs. The guy was a genius, but he had these odds and ends in his garage of like old rotary phones and VCRs and all kinds of stuff. And he would never throw it away in a huge part of my childhood was taking these things that were trash, disassembling them and making like UFOs or spaceships or, you know, ray guns for my Ninja Turtles and, and, and stuff like that. So it, it's funny because there is a beauty in the discard that a lot of people don't take the time to recognize. And there, there's so much wonderful things that can, st- there, there's so many wonderful things that can still be gleaned from these items that have been thrown away and, and discarded over time. So it, it, it really kind of spoke to me when, when I was reading things like, uh, you know, trash moon lives and, and, uh, even the, the world walker, um, 
this idea that the discarded doesn't have to be the forgotten. And, and I mm -hmm. think that that's a beautiful concept. Uh, also, you're funny as hell. Uh, <laughs> page 11 on um, uh, Trash Moon Lives. I, I laughed out loud at this line. Um, here we go. I think it must have been then that I started to wonder if perhaps I was in a world that was not my own. You may think the dancing crawfish would have been the thing, but I assure you, it was felt very natural. It felt very natural. <laughs> uh, I laughed out loud when I, there's a lot of humor in your work. Um, it touches on some very heavy subjects. I feel it touches on some um, things that that I have I believe have a tendency to get overlooked. But I loved the little bouts of humor in 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 your work and uh, very very cool stuff. <laughs> yeah, no, I appreciate that. Uh, thank you so much. That's so kind of you to say. We did. Um, I, I I did try to keep it a little bit light whenever there's a moment of humor, um, and and they, that's you know even just kind of uh, remember that same protagonist um, saying you know. Uh, looking at the constellation of uh, planets and him worrying that he would be made into uh, Uranus, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and just little, um, little bits of, of comedy, like, like, so it's not all bathroom. There is some, <laughs> some higher brow, but um, in general, I think that that's, that's a very much a mechanism that feels um I think like very natural as a storyteller. Uh, I think about, you know, Ulysses, which is like quite the hefty bit of work. Um, but also, you know, there's tons of, there's tons of humor in that. Um, definitely lots of bathroom humor. Uh, <laughs> and this idea of always sort of bringing uh, this, this moment of lightness to a kind of darkness. I think, uh, you know, if, anyone can, can imagine those moments when they felt particularly dark and down. Um, you know, it's just always that kind of dark comedy in a sense that really comes out that you, that you remember, uh, in that way. So it's, you know, it's not to say that life is, is one set or the other, but, um, it's kind of these moments poking through each other. It, you know, I, I've made the comment before, none of us are going to survive this. So don't take it so yeah. seriously. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah. What's really cool is is there's a you do a really good job of mixing the lighthearted with almost a beautiful melancholy in your work. There's a line in that very same story, page thirteen. If such things could be made into greatness, then perhaps I too could have also could also have such hopes for redemption. I read that and I said, "Damn." Ooh, that's, that's heavy. That's heavy, heavy, heavy. Yeah. You get to the crux of the, the, you know, sort of lead character in this particular story right there in that single line. It's a distilled just drop of this person's psyche. And, uh, but it is, it's, it's, like I said, it's a beautiful kind of melancholy feeling, but it's a great combination of the humor and the heavy all mixed into one. Yeah. Yeah. That is that, that is always the line that you think, oh man, Oh yeah. This guy, like you get it, you kind of get it at that point yep. that it isn't just this sort of, um, you know, uh, magical romp through, uh, you know, uh, a, a wild, uh, you know, time, but it is this kind of deep, deep journey of, of looking for the worth within himself. Mm -hmm. Um, and that sense that, you know, there's just not really a whole lot around him to, to, 
validate that. I believe that there comes a point in all great writing where it becomes relatable. And that particular line for me, at first I was reading a story and I was just really kind of absorbed in the imagery and the uh, dream logic quality of this piece. And that was the point for me where the story became relatable and, and it hit heavy. I really do, really do appreciate that piece. Oh, thank you. That's one of my favorites too. That's a really great one. Yeah, that's funny. As we're talking, what I love about our podcast is that we don't, rehearse questions. We don't, you know, we, we've, you know, we read the material, we read the author and then we just sit and talk. So, you know, whatever comes to mind, we get to talk about wherever the conversation goes, we get to kind of just follow it. And, um, as I was thinking, you know, we've talked a lot about the Heath estate and, you know, the character of Adelaide. And as I'm sitting here listening, you know, talking, listening to you and Adam, yours and Adam's exchange, you know, I'm remembering, it's like just a little flicker of a memory in the back of my head, just this past weekend in New Orleans, they did the second line for Anne Rice. Oh yeah. Is, yeah. Who is my, you know, who was one of my uh, inspirations as a writer. And it's funny because I know this is probably not a, maybe, I don't know if anybody else has, but a parallel between your work and hers, um, or at least where I draw, you know, uh, a line between the two is I love work that transports me somewhere. You know, um, I, I love the fact that in so many ways, you know, poetry and different things, prose, we can write about our own experiences, but sometimes I just want that escapism. I just want to be somewhere else in someone mm -hmm. else's existence and someone else's story and enjoy yeah. that for what it is. And you do that masterfully, absolutely impeccably well. Um, so thank you for, you know, <laughs> for, for bringing that, you know, in your work. And, um, you know, I've, like I said, I've had the, the pleasure of listening to you read, you know, and I think sometimes, you know, even reading it myself, you know, I enjoyed it so much more hearing it in your voice. And, you know, I've had the, like I said, the pleasure to do that when we were at KGB, when we were at the Alchemist Kitchen. Um, is there a little snippet from something in your book that you would like to help us close out with in our last 10 minutes? Ooh. Oh, wow. Would you regale us, question. please, with a? Yeah, 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 yeah. And no, I really appreciate. Um, I really appreciate that comment too, because that is so much of um, what I feel I like to do, especially when I read. Is the sense of, um, you know, just just wanting to slip into someone else's reality, to slip into a place that is liminal that is uh, a space of kind of impossibility um that is you know again away from the nose picking banality of it all <laughs> that's the and, greatest i'm going to write that somewhere that's something that should be tattooed on somebody's body the nose picking banality of it all yes let's see here um you know let me um since we do have a full moon this week and also to celebrate, um, we have a lunar eclipse happening early Tuesday morning, I believe. Uh, I'm going to read Lunatiques, the introduction. 
Um, and I think that that um, we'll see how we're doing on time and maybe we'll read the last short piece at the end um, to kind of close it all out. So here we are. Lunatiques. Here there be lunatiques in the city settled on an island made of steel and bones. They roam through the mismatched buildings, passing in and out of time and place as if it were the most natural thing in the world. Lunatiques wander the streets with their blood so boiling hot they could slip their skins right off and keep on walking. Some may call them strange and insane, but I call them family, for they are the children of the moon. I birthed them in the changing tides of the sea, pulling at their heartstrings and shaping them with the shifting glow of my moonbeams as their earth cast shadow between me and the sun. When the world and I were born, I watched from high above, content enough in doing just that. Everything changed when humans came into the world. They were, and still are, messy and complicated creatures, but there's beauty in all that heap of mess they make. Life on Earth became more than just living. There were stories being told again and again, with endings twisting and turning in ways which both delighted and saddened me in that bittersweet quality called living. The world is a deeply imperfect place. I see it all from above. Yet, there is so much wonder in it that I think I must be so big just to hold space for it all. I am moved by the simplest of things, a hand reaching out, a heartfelt confession, a secret embrace, or a vow made to live a truer self. The more I witnessed, the more I wished to shed my planetary skin for something more compact, so that I too may slip in between the crowds on a hot day in June. I longed to feel smoke-filled lungs breathing in the ash and heat of the city. I dreamt of being in the nose-picking banality of the mundane. Years of wishing and wanting without relief were such pain, but in that, something was created that I could have never expected. My tears poured out of me and magic rained down upon the earth. Down to the earth, this new magic fell and fulfilled the wish that I could never have. This is how the impossible became possible. The sun may have brought life, but I brought magic. Here's where a new kind of living was born in this world of man and magic. What came next were wonders I still don't understand. As I moved and changed in the reflection of the sun, so too did my lunatics change in the shifting light of my moonbeams. The transformation I so badly wished for myself became possible for those born under the sign of the moon. And so I birthed you and others just the same, my little lunatics, to live as you dream and wish to be the thing you know you are. The world is full of darkness, but even as you look upon me, you can see that there is light in the dark. I could tell you a thousand stories over and over that tell you just the same. So as you sleep and dream, I am here. When you reach out to me, I hold you in the way I can with all the magic and moonlight I possess. Oh, thank you so much for the read. Absolutely amazing. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Well, this has been an absolute pleasure. And uh, we genuinely appreciate you joining us for our first ever prose interview. 
Would you mind telling uh, us and the audience any new projects on the horizon? What else can we expect from you in the future? Oh, gosh. Well, we are going to be um, returning again to New York City to be hosting events. Um, but uh, for listeners who probably don't know, um, I am I'm giving birth on Thursday. So <laughs> that is in just a few days from now. And um, that is our our final wrap up to lunatics. Uh, but <laughs> um, that's one hell of an upcoming project, though. That is, that is. So that's where a lot of the energy is. Um, but right for the time being, um, we've, we've paused and I'm looking forward to getting back and getting back to the city to host events. You can always follow me, um, on Instagram S N excuse me, it'd be S period N period Kirby K I R B Y. And I'll post upcoming events there. We usually do a lot in and around the city. Um, I am now in the Atlanta area as well. So if you have any interest in, um, events coming up here, um, collaborating, you're more than welcome to message me and, um, just, you know, see what's going on. But to me, it's been, uh, such an honor and a, and a delight to be here today. And I really appreciate you both having me. Oh, and we appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. And um, we look forward to, you know, at some point we'll have you again. And um, hopefully we'll get to see some some of the burgeoning images of little Alonzo Luna, who we cannot well <laughs> wait to welcome into the into the wild world. And um, again, um, Sam, thank you so much again for taking the time to join us. I know this is a very, you know, it can be a high stress, precarious time, but I hope, you know, talking with us tonight was, you know, a pleasant distraction from the impending anxiety, uh, impending anxieties of, of <laughs> looming parenthood. <laughs> <laughs> like any good book, it was a wonderful delight and distraction. Great. Thank you so much again for joining us. So again, we are the Shadow Eraser Poetry Hour. You can find us on Instagram at shadow underscore eraser. And uh, I am Carla, who is shadow scribing. That is shadow underscore scribing at, uh, on Instagram. And my amazing co-host, Adam, which is underscore no underscore eraser underscore. Uh, again, we have wrapped up our deep dive with author S.N. Kirby, Samantha Kirby, author of the book Lunatiques. You want this book. You need this book. Buy the book. Support a, you know, support a mother. <laughs> support a mama. And again, have a wonderful night. Adam, you have anything you want to say before we close out? Oh, for it's the been night? an absolute delight. And um, thank you again uh, for your time and uh, humoring all of my my psychological picking apart of your, your beautiful creations. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. You're welcome. Have a great night, everyone. Thank you again for joining us. <laughs>